Hello and welcome to MedTech Africa, the podcast where we showcase digital health and health tech innovations from across the African continent. I'm your host, Sam Oti. My guest today is Dr. Pratap Kumar. He wears multiple hats, including being a senior lecturer at one of East Africa's leading business schools, but also serving as the CEO of a digital health company. That company is known as Health Enet, and they are on a mission to revolutionize the capture and use of high-quality data in global health. Health Enet has developed a suite of innovations, and you'll be hearing about some of them in today's episode. In fact, one of the innovations that you hear about won the Global Health Innovation Prize in 2018. I promise you it's going to be an amazing episode, so thank you for joining us and enjoy the conversation. Hello, Pratap, and welcome to MedTech Africa. Such a delight uh, to have you on the show, and uh, good to have you in the studio with me. You are based in Nairobi, I believe. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> and that's why we are here together uh, in a studio uh, recording live. Such a pleasure to, to have you on the show. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Sam. Thank you. And thank you for having me on this podcast and also uh, to be in this beautiful studio space. It feels like such a change from uh, the pandemic times. Uh, so we can actually be face to face in this beautiful surroundings in Nairobi. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and Dr. Fauci says uh, <laughs> Corona is over. <laughs> Okay, I, I think he, he said we, he was misquoted. But anyway, it's good to be in the studio and good to meet you uh, in person. And, and fun fact, you actually cycled all the way to the studio. How many kilometers did you cover? Uh, today, uh, not much, maybe about three or four kilometers. All right, so you, you don't live far away. <laughs> but cycling is good, good for health. Highly, highly recommended to, to anyone who can do it. It is, totally. And Nairobi is such a cycle-friendly city, I think. I mean, a lot of people disagree with me, but having lived all over the world and cycled in India and Europe and the US, I feel like Nairobi is one of the most uh, easy places to ride a bicycle and get anywhere you want to. And I think it's improving. I think they're, they're constructing the, the cycling paths and, and sidewalks, etc. things that we didn't have uh, before. And, and I guess that's also making it very suitable for, for cyclists. So, so good on you for, <laughs> for all, I guess, also being brave, brave enough. Because <laughs> I tried it once and wow, there were so many close shaves that I was like, nope, <laughs> this is not for me. <laughs> but yeah, I must tell you, I feel less brave here than uh, cycling in London, where you have this double-decker bus going at 60 yes. kilometers an hour one meter from you. Nairobi is much easier, but everybody has their own fear factor and I don't try and push too much. <laughs> well, it's, it's great to have you on the show. We always start by a little introduction. So, so let's start by learning about you. Who is Pratap Kumar? So I grew up as a uh, son of an engineer and an architect, and I was exposed to building and design from an early age. And I joined the Navy after that, after high school, and uh, I didn't like it. And then uh, I came into medicine. So I came completely accidentally into uh, the field of medicine. And after that, spent about 10 years in um, neuroscience research, specifically computational neuroscience. And the field, um, I realized after finishing my PhD or during my PhD, was uh, that it's focused more on computation than health. And so I found my way back into health and healthcare. Uh, through health economics and the pharma world. 
And uh, what I do now is uh, bringing in all these experiences and understandings of different fields uh, together into my work here in Nairobi. Wow, that's that's a dramatic leap from from being in the navy, <laughs> yeah, absolutely yes, uh, and getting into medicine and digital health. <laughs> I used to say, you know, uh, join the navy and see the world, but you know, public health is the way to go. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, totally agree. I I would never not trade my my career in public health for for the world. It's also given me an opportunity to travel the world and meet lots of great people. Such a pleasure again to have you on the show, and and I know you're leading an organization known as Health Enet, right? that is doing some great work in the digital health space. So tell us a bit about that organization and what your specific role is. Uh, so HealthyNet is uh, a digital health social enterprise, and I like to see it as um, setting the path for how digital health or digital technologies can influence public health. So I'm currently the C CEO of HealthyNet, um, and my role right now is shifting from initially being uh, quite central to uh, designing some of the technologies that we are we have developed uh, to uh, now trying to grow these to be used as widely as possible. Amazing stuff. And I really like the tagline on, on your website, revolutionizing the capture and use of data in global health. But let's start with the fundamentals, as we like to say in, in Kenya. What's wrong with the way global health currently captures and uses data? Uh, yeah, it's a big question. So let's step back a little bit and think about how um, technology has influenced the field of medicine and health. And so um, the technology that's most prevalent uh, when we think about health and or global health and, um, and technology is electronic health records, electronic medical records, or EMRs. And uh, while EMRs started off as a way for uh, improving patient care and managing patient care across different hospitals and different providers, um, the single biggest factor that's influenced the rise of EMR systems is billing. So hospitals billing insurers for the care that's provided. Uh, and this story of EMRs is really nicely captured in this um, piece by Dr. Atul Gawande called um, Why Doctors Hate Their Computers. <laughs> and so we've come a long way uh, from you know, EMRs holding a lot of promise to a lot of people really not liking the way EMRs are. Uh, but the same technology and the same architecture has been used in global health, uh, principally by PEPFAR and um, USAID. And the single biggest factor that's been driving the use of EMRs in global health has been monitoring and evaluation. Uh, so it's not uh, actually patient care or uh, the ease of use for doctors, but really reporting. Uh, so it's about uh, reporting the numbers, so donors wanting to know the impact in numbers. Uh, and so the, uh, where we are right now is that we are seeing this um, technology that's quite complex and uh, quite outdated in its architecture from the mid-90s uh, that is being used in the era of the smartphone um, and being used in contexts very different from the Harvard Medical Schools where these technologies were initially designed. And so what we are trying to do is um, the shift in two main ways. One is recognizing that a paper can be part of the digital ecosystem uh, because paper is used everywhere and everybody is comfortable with using paper. And the, the alternative of trying to get everybody to move into a paperless way of working is really challenging. You need a lot of infrastructure and you need loads of training for people in a repeated way. The second thing that we are trying to lead is this idea that we can use personal devices. We don't need to use bespoke uh, devices, bespoke um, desktops, PCs, laptops, tablets even, um, for the use of digital 
uh, technologies in healthcare. Almost every healthcare provider has a pretty powerful device, not necessarily a smartphone, but a reasonably uh, good device uh, that can be brought into play um, into uh, digital health to serve the needs. The needs being, let's improve the data and use this data to improve healthcare, improve the experience for patients, and improve uh, the workload for providers. Because a lot of the providers are really stressed in um, low-income settings, like you know, there's a, lo there's, a lot, there's a lot of patient demand, and um, the pressures on healthcare providers are immense. And reducing the pressure by enabling people to use technologies that are familiar to them, use interfaces that are familiar to them, is a really important step to be able to achieve our uh, desired outcomes of improved health. No, absolutely. And, and if I hear you right, you're basically saying that paper is here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, <laughs> in a sense that this haste and 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 I mean fair fair play fair enough, this 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 desire to transition to paperless paperless for example electronic me medical records, is well intended, but fraught with a lot of issues, infrastructural issues, adoption issues, and and so we can't just pretend that those are going to go away. Uh, overnight, and so we need to we need to keep that in mind. And even as we transition to digital, we also need to keep in mind the users who, you know, in order to ensure that the adoption barrier is lowered, need to work with devices that they are familiar with, right? Rather than that, rather than bespoke uh, devices. So, so that that is is very clear. So, so I know that you have uh, Health Enet is innovating uh, in this particular space and and has come up with a suite of innovations to try to address uh, some of the issues that. That, that you you have mentioned. So what are some of these uh, innovations, uh, if you don't mind running over them quickly? Uh, so I can start with paper EMR that we just spoke about, this idea that we can get high quality digital, digital data directly from paper. So it builds around um, uh, some of the um, advances in computational technologies recently, like computer vision and machine learning. Uh, so um, uh, in summary, we, can, we make it very easy for um, a healthcare provider to record information on a piece of paper and digitize that data by simply taking a picture on any device, even when offline and so on. Um, but this speaks to the idea that we need to capture uh, high quality digital data to be able to do something uh, important like improving healthcare or improving services. Uh, and the other two uh, technologies that we have developed uh, speak to that part of how do we use data to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, so the second product is um, Ironically, the first one that we started off uh, with in HealthyNet uh, called Gabriel. And Gabriel is uh, the name of the first patient that we uh, uh, supported um, uh, with remote consultation when he was suffering from cancer. Uh, and um, uh, like the name says, this is um, a technology to enable uh, remote medical services to be provided. Or like we said, it's uh, for a global skill force to be used to solve local problems. Uh, again, to do so, um, to be able to have a global digital, uh, global talent pool to serve a local healthcare problem, we need to share information. And that's at the heart of Gabriel. How do you capture the information that is relevant uh, for this particular case, say a patient in the slums in Nairobi, that they have uh, been diagnosed with cancer, they've um, uh, tried a couple of regimens or one regimen of chemotherapy has failed and they've been given a very dire prognosis. Can this patient be given some more information, some more support, some options. And to do that, we need to capture information about what's happened to this patient and their context 
very easily to somebody who's sitting remotely very far away from this person, from this patient in their context. So Gabriel came up from that idea that we want to be able to easily capture information re relevant to a certain case so that somebody remotely can help a patient over here. And the third technology is called Sonomobile, and that extends this idea of uh, capturing data easily and using it uh, through effectively through telemedicine. So what we have done is work with um, these, this new technology of uh, mobile ultrasound probes. And mobile ultrasound probes by themselves are great that you can conduct an ultrasound scan uh, anywhere, in a patient's house, in a small healthcare clinic. But the challenge is not many people are available to read these scans. Ultrasound is not very easy to read. If you've seen an ultrasound, a grainy black and white image, this does not make sense to most people. Uh, but we can't, it's going to take a long time um, uh, to train all the nurses across the country to be ultrasonographers. So what we have done is combine paper EMR so that antenatal care data is captured very quickly on paper and digitized. Uh, combine Gabriel with a mobile ultrasound probe so that a nurse can very easily take images. So we train them for about uh, four weeks and they can take relevant images of the fetus in pregnancy. And these images are relayed to a sonographer who can then fire up these images on any device, um, anywhere. They get a simple SMS link and start um, reporting on these images. And uh, these three aspects, antenatal care data, um, nurse um, imaging and reporting of these images using telemedicine is what is captured in, uh, in Sonomobile. So we can make this, uh, make ultrasound scans really affordable and accessible to every pregnant woman. So the nurse can show up either at the patient's home. In fact, um, my wife and I, we got our scan by a nurse visiting with um, a mobile probe, taking the scans in our bedroom, uh, sending the scans to a sonographer, a uh, few hours later, we get an SMS with a link to the report. And uh, this whole service is uh, at the price point that is reimbursable by the NHIF in, in Kenya. So I think we have uh, um, uh, a product and a service now that should be scalable um, to be able to make ultrasound in pregnancy accessible to every pregnant woman. Wow, those all sound pretty amazing. And, and I like... Two things you said. First of all, naming one of the apps after your first patient, <laughs> Gabriel. <laughs> That's such a nice touch, and I don't think I've, I've come across that in, on any other uh, innovation. So, so good on you for that. And also the fact that charity begins at home. You actually use your own technology, right? Your own innovation to, to scan your, your, your baby. Your <laughs> um, but we don't have time, and, and I'd love to go into each of them in, in detail. Uh, so let's zoom in on paper EMR. Could you tell us a bit more about it? How does it work? Uh, what are the features? And what specific gaps were you trying to, to address by developing paper EMR? So paper EMR was born um, about seven or eight years ago when I was advising clinics and, uh, and doing quality improvement in primary care. And the only way we could improve quality was by going through um, the patient documentation, a clinical documentation, and realizing quickly that without a, st a structured way of entering information, we couldn't get out a structured data very easily. And so we started off by, in a very simple way by saying, how do we put in a very simple structured template into any piece of paper? Because almost every patient's um, 
every patient documentation is done on paper. So we hit upon this idea that we can use a rubber stamp. A simple rubber stamp uh, can be there everywhere. Everybody knows how to use a rubber stamp. And uh, you have a few, say, half a dozen rubber stamps on the table. And a typical outpatient uh, primary healthcare clinic will be seeing the malarias, the UTIs, the URTIs. And you'll pick up the template that's relevant and place a stamp of a clinical care uh, guideline or protocol into the patient's um, uh, case record. It could be either a piece of paper ma managed by the facility or even a patient-held notebook. And that template gives you a structured checklist. Uh, so the first um, uh, step was to see if clinicians uh, in these small pri uh, private sector healthcare, uh, healthcare facilities would like to use these structured templates. And the answer to that was very quickly, yes. They like to have structure. They like to be supported in what they do. And they're happy to work with these structured templates. Uh, once we saw that, uh, we uh, were able to get the data in a very simple way. Right? We would take a, uh, a picture and put the data into uh, a spreadsheet and uh, understand where the gaps are and try and improve quality. And we could do that. We could feed back the practice information to these primary healthcare providers and improve quality. And then we went about this idea of how do we do this um, faster and more easily, uh, recognizing that there is a smartphone available in every small uh, primary health center. And uh, we need to take an image, but automatically get this data extracted from this image. So the old idea, uh, so anybody who's answered multiple choice um, uh, uh, questions knows the idea of shading circles. Uh, and this is the old technology of op optical mark recognition. And that kind of stopped at some point in, in how it was used. So you had to have a scanner um, uh, with uh, dedicated software to be able to get data from these, um, what used to be called scantrons. We wanted to do this on a basic mobile phone uh, and without internet, uh, without much, uh, without even using an app. Uh, because downloading an app is one of the barriers to using uh, mobile technology. So what we have done is uh, make this computer vision technology really efficient and to be packaged into a browser-based system. So you just navigate to a website, and now that website, if you take a picture, can extract the data from this image for you. And that even works offline. And so that's been the uh, starting point and the, you know, the unique selling point of Paper EMR, that we can um, allow a healthcare provider in this small clinic to take notes as usual on paper, but once the patient's gone, just take a picture of that um, uh, template, and that data is quickly digitized. They can interact with that data. They can correct any mistakes uh, if required. And uh, that data can be saved in the cloud, even by sending an SMS. You don't even need to have uh, mobile internet. So these are all uh, the, uh, I would say, the unique selling uh, features. But ultimately, it's about making it usable in a setting in a slum uh, in Kenya. Uh, so we can use digital health uh, technologies, get capture data, which is otherwise very difficult to get very easily uh, and without having extra manpower, extra devices, additional training. So overcome many of these barriers, but still get the data you need to improve quality of care.
that that sounds awesome. And I think back to the days when I was practicing in in the in middle of nowhere, <laughs> and and just wondering. I, I I mean, if I if only I had something like that, right? It would have saved a whole lot of work taking notes. And well, of course, you still have to take the notes. But you think about the people that need to now transmit uh, the health records up the chain, and and having something like that saves them uh, a lot of time. So that's that's pretty amazing. So so where 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 is paper EMR currently being used? So you mentioned Turkana. <laughs> For the audience outside Kenya, so Turkana is uh, part of Kenya, but quite uh, remote, uh, <laughs> just to give some context there. Yeah, it's really remote. Uh, this vast area, uh, one of the biggest regions in uh, uh, Kenya, and um, uh, a population of one million people, but a very sparsely distributed uh, nomadic population. So paper EMR is being used in uh, Turkana, for example, um, so in Turkana, uh, we have one use case, which is with community health workers. These are members of the community who routinely get um, products that they can dispense uh, to their communities, say an anti-malarial uh, tablet or anti-diarrheal uh, sachets. Uh, but somebody in the medical health system wants to know what is being distributed by these community health workers. So what we have done is partner with a healthcare supply chain company so that uh, whatever the the community health workers get and dispense is documented on paper. But every month they file this report using paper EMR. They take pictures of their paper sheets and that data comes to the uh, people who are managing their supplies. And they have data, very um, granular, granular data on which community health worker is distributing which products in which area. But on the uh, other end of the spectrum, we also have uh, the Lodwar County Referral Hospital using paper EMR to document every need for blood in that hospital. So we're working with a large um, research um, project that's trying to understand the blood system in Kenya. And one of the big gaps in knowledge is how much blood is requested and for what conditions and where, and what happens, do they get that blood or not? And so now with paper EMR, uh, we're using, um, we've modified the... Um, um, the blood requisition forms that are used in the hospitals to be structured in a um, way that uh, taking a picture can read the information. So it's all the same information that was being captured before. It's just that now that this information is digitizable. And so now uh, in Nakuru uh, Referral Hospital, a thousand bed hospital, uh, Turkana, Siaya, Naivasha, every use of blood is being documented using paper EMR. Uh, the other success story is Migori County. So the county itself, uh, so uh, Dr. Elizabeth Mgamb, I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, uh, she was the uh, county director of health and she saw paper EMR and said this is exactly what we need. Uh, we have a lot of uh, maternal health. Um, uh, there's a research project that is uh, ending and we don't know how to get the same data that we've been used to getting. So can paper EMR help? And so we designed the safe childbirth checklist uh, the same checklist they were using before, but slightly um, modified. Uh, it's easier to use. And every birth in Migori County is being documented using paper EMR. And so uh, we have data on uh, about 10,000 births um, and very detailed data uh, saying you know, when was this um, mother admitted, what were the uh, conditions at admission, what were the how how did labor progress? Uh, what are the APGAR scores of the child? What are the discharge status? So data that's very difficult to get in any other way is what paper EMR is making possible. Wow, wow, that that is absolutely mind blowing. And I'm asking myself, 
why is in paper EMR everywhere? <laughs> I, I would have expected that this is something, you know, especially uh, people at the county level in Kenya who are responsible for service delivery. It's now, uh, there's now, uh, there's devolution, right? And so um, healthcare has been devolved to the county government. So I'm like, why aren't all the counties banging down your door and saying, we, we need this? And, and I think that's a great segue to talk about some of the challenges uh, that you are facing in terms of, of adoption of, of paper EMR? Absolutely. This is a really important question. And we spent a couple of years trying to sell to the county governments, saying, you know, you, you have this technology that's being used in uh, some parts of Kenya. Would you like to use it? And the answer I get very commonly is that we like this. We really love this technology. Um, it's really relevant and useful. It's affordable, but we don't know how to pay for it. And that is really insightful for you know um, all the health systems people out there is that I don't think, and this realization is coming across um, more and more, that regional governments are not equipped to procure digital technologies. So if they wanted to procure paper EMR, they would have to create uh, a tender or try to open source procure a, a solution like this. So e so right from writing that tender document to be able to uh, invite bids, manage that bid, provide the contract, and monitor the contract, this is not something that counties do or governments do very easily. So they're um, so it's not that they don't know how to use technology, but they don't know how to procure digital technology. And so this is one of the big barriers that we face. We don't uh, that uh, the um, Organizations that can use it at scale, specifically governments, can't procure it very easily. Yes. Wow. That is that is such an interesting insight because I mean governments have always been good at procuring things <laughs> when it's when it's when it suits them. So would it help to go through the national governments? Who I mean, in, at, at least Kenya is unique in the sense that devolution is relatively new. Uh, fine, it's been around for over ten years, but but still, uh, a lot of the sub-regional governments are still learning about service delivery across different domains, not not just health. So will it help if you try to engage um, the, the national governments in terms of supporting the regional governments to sort of build this capacity for procuring digital health? Uh, so that is uh, certainly, that would certainly help. And I think there's uh, this real, realization and there is a, uh, an effort called the SPARC program, I believe, that is trying to uh, help strategic procurement um, in government. Increase the capacity for governments to do strategic procurement. Um, as HealthyNet, I don't think we can um, we can fight that battle at that level. Like let uh, others and, and share our learnings with the people who can then support governments to be able to procure such technologies. Uh, what we are doing at HealthyNet is to uh, is recognizing that there are partners to government that can procure. Uh, so these are the larger NGOs. Yeah. And that's our um, uh, strategy is to try and work with these partners to, um, uh, to governments uh, so that they can procure and implement paper EMR, uh, whether it's for supply chain management or primary health care provision or quality improvement in maternal, maternal health. And uh, this, unfortunately, is also a slow, um, is also slow progress because um, most NGOs work with donors and donor cycles. So we need to get in early. We need to um, uh, have close relationships with multiple NGOs, be in the bid at an early stage. So these are things that we are learning as well. How do we navigate this global health financing ecosystem? 
No, that's very a very important insight. So, so I want to ask, so how are the funders receiving uh, paper EMR? I know you've already won uh, a number of grants for proof of concepts, etc. cetera. Uh, but, but just before uh, recording, you talked about how there's been some barrier to, to scaling because of the specific and unique business model that paper EMR uh, adopts. So could you tell us a bit of, uh, more about that? So there is what's called path dependency. So I suppose uh, the uh, uh, easiest way to explain this is that there's a lot of money that's already been put in into certain types of systems, uh, digital systems. And uh, to uh, provide a solution that um, essentially goes against uh, a lot of existing investments into uh, types of system, interoperability of these systems, standards, and so on, is, is challenging. So it's going to take some time. So we are, and that's the reason to um, write our recent publication called "Digital is Not Equal to Paperless." Mm -hmm. So uh, we're trying to uh, share this message as widely as possible, especially in the donor and um, uh, financing community, to say uh, if you want to do digital, don't ignore paper. Uh, it's important to keep paper in this whole digital ecosystem because it's easy to use. Everybody knows how to use it, and we have technologies to be able to take get data from from paper. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time, but I think we are also at that uh, cusp that we have, I think, done the right things. Uh, there are publications and evidence, uh, there's evidence out there. Uh, and so now it's um, really about knocking on as many doors as possible and uh, and sharing this message. No, absolutely. And and le le let me just follow up on the point you made about evidence. I think that is one of the glaring weaknesses of a lot of digital health innovators and innovating that is happening uh, across the developing world. The people are rushing to come up with these different solutions and not spending enough time to, you know, t generating the evidence, you know, rigorous evidence that, that backs the effectiveness or at the minimum efficacy of, of some of these uh, innovations. And perhaps it's also been, you know, enabled by some of the funders who are in a haste to see results uh, and not really investing sufficiently uh, in, in research. But, but you as a senior lecturer at, at uh, Strathmore Business School, uh, part of your intent is also to spend time generating ev evidence uh, on the work that you're doing. So could you speak uh, a bit more about what you're doing in that sense? Absolutely, and thanks for highlighting that. Uh, so, yes, um, uh, the um, um, need for evidence is important. Um, but I would also like to highlight the, uh, the fact that the kind of evidence that we've been used to in uh, healthcare and medicine is of a certain type that may not be completely fit for evaluating something like a digital health in, um, intervention or innovation. Uh, so the gold standard, like we say very commonly in the healthcare space, is a randomized controlled trial. Uh, and these trials have been um, um, uh, focused on um, a very uh, concise innovations like a drug or a medical device. Digital technologies often tends to um, be part of a process as opposed to a pill that can solve the problem very specifically. And so the kind of evidence that is needing to be generated, that needs to be generated or can be generated uh, from digital uh, interventions 
is likely to be uh, different. And that's one of the uh, challenges, I think, broadly in the global health space. So um, uh, the field of implementation science um, is certainly starting to uh, get a lot of traction in the public health space. And um, uh, what I'm doing through Strathmore is also uh, trying to develop um, effective ways of highlighting the efficacy, like you say, or the impact in different ways of digital solutions. Uh, so, for example, for our teleconsultations work that we uh, did in Turkana, uh, we used um, a really interesting method called appreciative inquiry. So it's not about just the numbers of um, how we were able to um, improve uh, specific um, health conditions in people's lives, but also how. Uh, so how were uh, these technologies used by the different stakeholders? How are they perceived? Uh, what kind of um, barriers were there? And what do these stakeholders see or appreciate about these interventions uh, as they exist? And what would, it, what would they like to see in the future? So these are all important lessons, I think, are no less important to document and share than uh, a randomized controlled trial evidence where you want to show um, the uh, significance of a certain uh, change in, in numbers. No, that's a very important point. I, I co-founded this network of impact evaluation researchers in, in Africa. And one battle that we continue to fight with, uh, you know, some development economists and development experts is about, you know, gold standard. And should we always stick to the gold standard? Yes, randomized controlled trials is quote-unquote the gold standard, but is it always practical? And, uh, you know, <laughs> should we not think about, you know, other alternatives and, and all that? So it's, it's, it's a battle that we continue to fight. For some people, it's not rigorous if it's not an RCT. Absolutely. But I would like to highlight the, uh, the fact that digital innovation is going to happen through small organizations. And these innovators do not often have um, a good understanding of um, the statistics and the methods that could be used. And so at an early stage of a digital uh, innovation, we need, it's, uh, the, the onus is upon the public health um, researchers to say what type of evidence or what type of studies can be um, incorporated or paired with an early stage digital innovation and slowly build up the case towards an RCT. Yes, at some point, a randomized controlled trial is likely to be needed and um, and and practical and affordable, but not in the early stages. And a lot of digital interventions are in that early stage. And so we do need to think very carefully and hard about how do we generate the early stages of evidence that will build up towards an RCT. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is where we need to think about partnerships. And, and, and the funders, again, also, I'm, I'm just reiterating that, that funders need to, they need to support small uh, digital organizations, SMEs, what have you, with that patient capital to help them not just innovate, but to bootstrap and uh, iterate as they, you know, they scale up, as they roll out, and uh, continue to generate, support them with generating evidence uh, as, as they go along. So that is a very, very important point. So, I mean, <laughs> we've been speaking for a while and, and time flies when you're having fun. But, but what next for, for paper EMR? To me, it's such a great innovation. Uh, and you said, and as you said, digital is not equivalent to paperless. We, we can't run away from the fact that paper is going to be around for, for a long time, especially in highly resource-constrained settings, right? So we need to do what we can to optimize the, the use of, of paper for, for collecting data. 
So what next for PayPal EMR? Hmm. Um, yeah, this is a very um, pertinent and timely question, and this is what I'm struggling with right now. So there are two uh, um, uh, routes uh, that I'm trying to chart for uh, for PayPal EMR. One is within the healthcare space. Um, there is a lot of um, there are a lot of areas within healthcare. So everything from uh, it's not just about quality improvement of primary healthcare. Uh, it's also about supply chain management. It's uh, claims management in uh, insurance, for example. How do we get claims uh, to be managed uh, from a small primary health center in the private sector in Turkana uh, without uh, the insurance company having to invest a lot in uh, the uh, traditional digital systems. So there's a lot of space within the the wider healthcare ecosystem where paper EMR can be used, and we are trying to chart um, the growth there. But I think more and more the realization is that uh, paper EMR can be used beyond health as well. Uh, and um, finding those ideal use cases uh, to demonstrate the value of this technology more broadly uh, is a large part of our work as well. So we are trying to work with um, other innovators in the um, in the region, Sanergy, for example, which is a sanitation um, and um, a sanitation uh, firm developing uh, fertilizers, and they want to know uh, what fertilizer is being sold, where, how many bags, to what kind of farmer, what kind of crops are they using it for, and suddenly paper EMR is uh, a very pertinent tool for them to collect this data from uh, all over Kenya about where this fertilizer is being used. And so uh, I'm uh, trying to think about um, um, where we could, um, uh, where paper EMR can have uh, a lot of benefit and uh, uh, where we can, uh, which areas we can access as a small digital health company based in Nairobi. Uh, so this, um, uh, I'm trying to balance these two pressures of uh, how do we have a huge amount of impact and how do we do it practically and feasibly for a company based here? So this is uh, my ongoing, my current challenge. Wow. Well, it would be a darn shame, pardon my French, if, <laughs> if paper EMR pivots completely away from, from, from healthcare. I think the use case is so strong, especially in, 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 our, uh, in our context. And, and I really hope uh, that you find the support that you need and uh, the pathways to scale scale sustainably and that you don't end up being uh, that company that moved from delivering blood products to deli delivering groceries for, Am for Amazon. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think you can rest assured. My heart is in health, right? And for, uh, for me, um, uh, the whole... Uh, my. Uh, the focus of my effort is to say, how do I make the maximum impact in health? Is that by having a slightly sustainable business by doing non-health use cases? It's possible, but uh, the goal is certainly to make as much of an impact in healthcare as possible. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, digital is not equivalent to paperless. And you've heard from Dr. Pratap Kumar, who's talked about his innovations, uh, paper EMR being one of them, and how that is trying to tra transform the way we collect health data. Pratap, it's been an absolute delight having you uh, on the show. And please, uh, since you're based in Nairobi, let's keep in touch. And I sincerely wish your company all the best uh, as you continue to innovate in the digital health space. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here as well and share some of my thinking. Thank you. 
thanks for listening. I hope you found today's episode enjoyable and insightful. If you have any thoughts on this episode or recommendations of African health tech innovators that you'd like me to host on the show, please reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email by the links in this episode's show notes. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to MedTech Africa on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, please leave us a great review because it really helps other people to find the show. Thanks again. I'm your host, Sam Oti, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.